so in my effort to start talking to the guys that are actually cutting down these trees, I've got Josh Weber here on the line. Josh and his wife run a company called Timber Woodcraft, which little little company in Louisville that uh, is sawing up logs. So that's very cool. So uh, Josh had, had reached out to me and said, you know, hey, I, uh, I cut down some, some trees and mill them into things, and I also have a solar kiln. So my thought was, two birds with one stone. I want to talk to somebody with a solar kiln and I want to talk to an urban logger. So Josh, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm, I'm really excited to be here, guys. Let's, let's, um, let's kind of, let's do the, the origin story here. Tell us a little bit about timber woodcrafts and how you got started. Yeah. So I started working with wood as, as a boy before my teen years, my brother and I, and my two stepbrothers were building uh, my dad's house in Indiana. We bought about 18 acres of forest land. We cleared it. And I, I remember being on the, uh, the roof helping him shingle. And I was, I was 10 years old, helping him shingle, you know, putting nails in the wrong spots and things like that. So that's kind of where, <laughs> right. where this process started for me, working with wood and, and learning how to, how to build and create. Um, that was part of it. The other side of it was uh, for my stepfather. My mom remarried when I was 10. And my stepfather did a lot of fine woodworking. So every other weekend was with my dad. We were doing construction, and uh, I remember I was, you know, cutting down trees. And now oh, that was a sassafras tree because you could smell it. And this is a walnut or a cherry tree, things like that. And then during the weeknights, I would help my stepfather, and we made anything from built-in uh, bookcases, our coffee table. We refinished an old dining table, and uh, we even did a little bit of uh, Kentucky long rifle making, long rifle making, which was really sweet. So hmm. I kind of got both sides there. And that's really where the origin of, I guess you could say my, my quote skills came from. My wife had a little bit of experience as well from her father and really what she brought to the table, as far as our business goes, she brought a, a fearlessness to the table. I was terrified to start our own business. It seemed daunting and there's all these things you got to apply for and hoops you got to jump through and all this stuff. And her father really taught her to just go for it. And so she was a really big, really big push behind that. But the origin story behind our business, that was kind of leading up to it, was mm -hmm. there was a tree in our neighbor's backyard, which backed up to ours. It was a giant oak tree, and uh, he wanted it cut down. Now, we live in Louisville, Kentucky, so the summers here are very warm and very humid. He wanted it cut down. I remember asking him, why, why, do you, why are you going to cut this tree down? It was healthy. He said he didn't like the shade. And I, I thought, well, yeah, that's, that's why in the winter they drop their leaves. So when you need the sun in the winter, you know, it hits your house then. And so they cut it down and I thought, surely they'll take this, you know, to some sawmill and save it. And they didn't, they cut it into about 18 inch rounds and just loaded it onto a flatbed truck and drove away. And I thought right. there's gotta yeah, be, they gotta, they gotta lift it. Right. You know, you gotta That's cut right. it down to little rounds just to put it into the dump truck, you know, and, and yep. yeah, your heart is breaking as you're watching this happen. Yeah. It's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. And which we'll get to in a little bit, we work with, with tree trimmers here in Louisville, Kentucky, but what a lot of people don't realize is if you don't have a crane, you really can't handle these, these even medium sized trees, let alone these large mm. trees that grow in urban areas. You either have to have another tree company come and, and you then pay them for their crane or you chop it up into really small pieces because you can't lift it four feet high onto the you know, a flatbed. So we saw right. this get, get rounded up and loaded and we just thought there's gotta be a better way, a better way to do this. Um, simultaneously as that was happening, my wife and I are both trained teachers, so I was teaching high school at a local school here in Louisville. 
And as a teacher, if there's any teachers listening out there, uh, we still love teaching. We love teachers, but you always got to kind of pedal something in the summer to make financial ends meet. And so that kind of, I guess that scenario kind of got the, uh, the creative juices flowing. So, so to speak. Nice. Nice. Well, it's actually a good forward. First of all, what subject did you teach? Uh, I actually taught at a Christian school. So I taught high school Bible and, um, and then also taught a few PE classes and a weightlifting class. My degree is, is actually in exercise physiology. So it has nothing to do with woodworking in, in any regard. So. Hey, we'll, we'll talk about that later as I'm gearing up for triathlons, if they ever happen this season, who knows? Everything's canceled so far, but there you go. That's right. I had a fun little nutritional uh, breakthrough this weekend and a great threshold ride. It was awesome, but that's yeah. a totally other, to- different topic altogether. That's so right. in- interesting because th- this happens a lot where, you know, somebody's got a, a, a full-time gig and like the passion or the little side interest, it's like, well, maybe, you know, I've got, I've got the time here or uh, the business started on a, on a furlough or on a vacation or in your case, summer, um, summer break. And, uh, suddenly it kind of grows a lot bigger. So what, what, when was the tipping point for you? Cause this is, this is it. This is full time now, correct? Yes. We're, I'm no longer teaching. I've been done teaching for a full year now. So last May to, okay. to this May. And we started our business at the very end of 2017 was when we, we applied to our first art show. Um, and we wanted to make a few products and get in and they were from salvaged lumber and so we applied to it in 2017 and then 2018 and 2019, business actually picked up pretty quickly, really more than we could handle. And so we, we tried this, this really weird balance of marriage. We have two young kids. Uh, we had our second one in, in 2018 and trying to now balance going to work, but then coming home evenings and weekends working, but being with family. And it was, it was difficult. So then finally, by the end of 2019, we realized we need to, we want to make this jump. We need to make this jump. And so we, we left teaching and now we do this full time. My wife and I stay home full time with our kids and it's, it's great. We wouldn't change it for anything. Yeah, but that sounds fantastic. Living the dream. That's great. Yep. So, um, it's particularly interesting. So today you are, I guess one would still say you're primarily, um, a custom maker, you know, in the most generic for, uh, most generic sense, you know, I've been to your website and your everything from cutting boards and charcuterie boards and tables and furniture. And that's kind of what you guys do, but the story, the brand, if you will, the, the uniqueness of what you do is that you are actually milling all the wood you're using from logs that are, um, I think the word you used earlier was salvaged, um, which I'll, put a pin in that. I want to get to that later. The marketing guy me wants to investigate that term. Um, so as you, as your elevator pitch, if somebody says, okay, what do you do? You are essentially, um, a maker and the, the logging, not logging, the milling, the sawing, all that is just part of that process. Correct. That's correct. That's in order to really get our end product the way we want it as far as quality goes. Uh, but also it helps right. keeps our, our margins lower financially if we we collect these trees versus you know buying them or paying for them. And and that's a particularly interesting point because there is a um, you know a, a necessary evil one might say is 
oftentimes the Sawyer isn't also doing the building. And the Sawyer is trying to focus on the best yield from that particular log. Right. And, you know, there, there's that, that disconnect and, and, and we as builders will go in and, okay, I'm building a table or I'm building a chair and you're trying to select the right lumber for it. You have the wonderful advantage Maybe, maybe you have a piece in mind or sometimes you see that log or you can't really tell until you make that first cut and split it open, you know, crack it open and see the, the, the treasure inside. But a lot of times you may be already thinking, oh, you know, there's um, there's a charcuterie board right there. Look at that mm-hmm. crotch section right there. I mean, and you have the ability to actually custom saw with an end product in mind, which is pretty amazing. Like what a cool advantage. I think any woodworker out there would love to be able to to, to say that. Um, but how much do you find yourself sawing with a project in mind or letting the lumber kind of dictate? What is it to say about sculptors? They, they saw the, the, they saw the statue inside the block of marble before they started (laughs) carving something along that line. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't think I'm that artistic to, to see it in the tree <laughs> before, I guess the sculpture part, but I think there actually is a disconnect. I see a tree. It looks like a tree. That's right. I think there actually is a disconnect even before that step. Um, and that's when it comes to the logging, you know, when a loggers, uh, when loggers buy a forest or buy land or, or get onto someone's property, they're looking for the straightest trees that have the least amount of taper, the least amount of branches, specific varieties. And those are the ones that come out that then the Sawyer gets to choose from how to get the best yield. We go one right. step before the Sawyer, even though we do our own milling, I, I get to go to a lot of these sites where the arborists uh, cut down trees and sometimes even stockpile the trunks just because it's so expensive to dispose of them or so difficult. And we get, a, we get to select the trees that maybe aren't the prettiest or our specific variety that we like or we want or are of a certain size. So from that standpoint, that's where we do a lot of our, I guess you could say, our creative vision. And then the milling is determined by that, what we saw on the log, what we what will be the best use of the log um, from there? Right. So, and then, cool. and then, yeah, we, we cut it sometimes with a certain uh, end goal in mind. Uh, if, if someone has a special order for a tree, we'll do that, but you get a lot of off cuts as well. And we try to use those as well. So we, we use it all. Right. So let, let's, let's talk brass tacks here. What are, what are you using? What is your sawmill? So our sawmill is a Norwood brand. Um, it's actually okay. a, a, I think it's a sub company under Norwood. Norwood owns it. It's called Frontier. They use mm-hmm. a lot of the Norwood, they have a Norwood, you know, patented saw head and things like that. It's a lot cheaper of an entry point than a wood miser. Or um, I know right. some of the guys listening might might know this. We're in Louisville, so it's two hours south of Indianapolis. That's Wood Miser's headquarters. So I'm in I'm in Wood Miser territory here, but they're just expensive and even used ones really, really hold their value well because they're really well made machines. So we went in sure. with this. It's a it's a frontier model and uh, We've been pretty happy with it so far. Eventually, we will upgrade. This was just kind of one of the entry points. So that's one of them. The other sawmill we use is an Alaskan mill. So we use a chainsaw. We put it horizontal and use a rig and slice up a lot larger logs. And that's a Husqvarna 13. I think it's a 1385 is the model number. It's like 130 cc's. Okay. So what are your capacities on on both of those, both the Alaskan and the, the, the bandsaw mill? So we can go 20, 20 inches wide on the on our frontier mill, and that's on our bandsaw mill. And then we can go up to six feet wide on our portable mill, which is great because if there's a log that's six feet long and it's about 20 inches in diameter, that's about all we can really handle. We don't have a lot of big machinery. We don't have a crane truck and things like that. If there's a bigger right. log, you know, you get a three feet, four foot in diameter, 12 feet long, 
you start looking at some really difficult equipment to, to handle that. And that's where we just take our Alaska mill, the chainsaw to the log. Right. That's a heck of a bar on a chainsaw though. Wow. Yeah. Uh, what's even worse is we sharpen our own chains. That's a lot. And we use a skip tooth, uh, uh, chain. Um, so <laughs> it's half the teeth and it yeah. still is, it takes forever to sharpen. Yeah, I'll bet. Yeah. That's nuts. That'll be your next investment. Uh, like a sharpening machine, like a Foley sharpening machine or something like that. Yes. Yes. Wow. That's right. That's right. So is the, the primary way you're getting these logs is taking your mill, whether it's the Alaskan or the band mill to the location, sawing it there, or, or, or is anybody actually bringing it to you? We actually have most of our logs dropped off in our driveway, which is great. When we were first <laughs> thinking of this process, we're like, how do I go? And, and we had a small trailer at the time, but it doesn't take long to get into some, to some serious weight with, with wet trees, wet logs. Yeah. They're always heavier than you think. Uh, they're always bigger than you than you think from a distance. But for the most part, uh, tree trimmers, we work with a few specific ones here in Louisville, about half a dozen, and they know what we want and they'll give me a call and they'll say, I've got a I've got, you know, walnut log, I've got three cedars and an oak or whatever else. Um, and they'll be in our area. They'll just come drop it off and dump it right in the driveway. Then I'll I'll drag it back to our mill, which is in our mm -hmm. um, at our property and we mill it up here on site. The Alaskan mill, our, our saw, our chainsaw, we will take to customers. So, Very cool. So, but you're not actually felling the trees, correct? Correct. No, no, we don't. Yeah. That's a whole different insurance game at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say the insurance on that. I, I have a, the general manager of the lumberyard where I work, that used to be his business. And he's like, I loved it. And I almost went, I almost went broke doing it because the insurance mm -hmm. was so bad. He's like next to doctors. It's like the worst insurance in the world. <laughs> yeah, It's so yeah. expensive and there's so many issues. And, and frankly, uh, I, gosh, in my County alone in the last like four years, there's been three deaths mm. from this, from mm. like a, a, someone falling out of a tree or a tree falling on someone, just horrible, mm. horrible, grizzly things, but yeah. it happens. It's a, it's a dangerous business and it definitely requires a, a certain set of skills and a whole lot of insurance. Yeah. And as you said earlier, usually a crane. Um, and this <laughs> yeah. is the thing that, that I didn't really think about. I had a huge Norfolk pine, uh, uh, not Norfolk, um, Norwegian pine taken down in my yard a couple of years ago. And I, you know, I specifically talked to the guy and I said, you know, I'd like to use as much of the bowl as I could. Cause I think I can make Windsor seats out of it. It's a good, mm -hmm. oh, wow. I mean, it's five plus feet in diameter at the bottom. It was wow. a big old tree. It'd been there wow. since the 1960s, but it was also been there since the 1960s. And those pine trees really are not meant to grow super, super old. So it was starting to drop branches left and right. And, you know, it was like, it's time to go. So the guy said, you know, when he came out to initially do the, the estimate, he said, well, I, I can, but it would cost, and I can't remember what it was, but it was like double the price in order to get the entire uh, trunk or just, you know, the normal removal price if he got me like six feet of it. Yes. And I was like, that's kind of interesting. In my mind, I'm thinking, well, that's less cutting, right? You know, it's just one cut at the bottom. And he's like, well, here's the problem. I need to have a crane. Because mm -hmm. I can't just, you can't just timber and let the thing fall over because yeah. there are gas lines under the ground. Maybe, maybe there aren't, you know, um, there are, are wires above that you've got to figure out the whole hypotenuse and are you going to run into anything? And then you have yep. to remove wires. There's also just, sometimes they don't fall exactly where you want them to fall. And, and you can do all kinds of stuff to strategically drop a tree, 
but there's just so many risks involved that in order to legally do this, they have to hook the crane to it and do a controlled drop. And I, you know, I'd seen it done before and I was just thought, oh, well, you know, they have the crane, they're using it. No, apparently that's a requirement. Yeah. There is no felling, you know, like you're, you're, you're watching on TV or something, these huge long trees dropping down on the ground because there's so much damage that can occur. And mostly what happens is it actually shatters sewage pipes and yep. gas lines and yep. all the fun fiber optic stuff that runs <laughs> under our ground now that you don't even know is there. Yeah. You know, all they say, well, you call, you know, Miss Utility or all these people before you dig, well, then you would have to call. And basically there is no, no chance in hell that anyone's ever going to approve you to drop, you know, a 10, 15, 20 foot long log because it's going to register on the Richter scale when it hits the ground. Yep. And yes, it will. that had just never occurred to me. And as it is, the six-foot log that they, they left me with, that they did fell, I mean, you would think I live down the street from an Army proving ground, and usually every Thursday, it's howitzer day. And I was like, this tree hit the ground, and I was like, it's not Thursday. What's going on? Holy <laughs> crap. The whole house shook. Yeah. Neighbors came out from like three doors down and were looking out the front door going, what was that? Yep. yep. So yeah, it's it's one of those things you don't think about, but holy crap, those things are heavy. Um, well, let alone of, they wouldn't be able to move it once it was down. One of my great, one of my favorite episodes from the lumber um, update, which to the listeners out there, I've been listening to this since since the conception, and I've loved it um, <laughs> since its inception. I mean, so but one of my favorite episodes was when you talked about carbon sequestration, and and it was just so fascinating to hear. I don't remember what episode number that was, but just the amount of carbon that trees sequester from the atmosphere really is tremendous. And then you fill them with water yeah. and yeah, man, they are just, they are just so, so surprisingly heavy. Well, and a lot of the yard trees that you're probably running into, um, even more so because they're allowed to branch out like crazy, you know, mm -hmm. leaves, leaves, leaves. I mean, they're the, the, the yard tree, the ornamental tree looks better, the fuller it is. Well, the fuller mm -hmm. it is, the more stuff it's sucking out of the atmosphere. So yeah, I mean, there's, there's something to be said about um, a nice forested, shady, older neighborhood. But at the same time, a lot of the trees that the builder originally planted, they planted them to grow fast. You know, they yes. wanted shade to grow up really quickly. So you get a lot of these Norwegian pines, you get a lot of softwoods. Um, and then you get some of the more ornamental hardwoods that leaf out like the dogwoods, the Korean dogwoods, mm -hmm. especially, um, sycamores grow super, super fast. Um, mm -hmm. But once they get like 40 years old, less than that from a lot of the softwoods, they really stop doing what they do best. They, the the yes. sequestration really slows down and then they start to become more of a hazard because the tree mm -hmm. itself, it if it grows that old, it's usually in a forest and the natural competition for light and nutrients is kind of keeping them in check. And as they grow taller, the whole forest canopy kind of grows taller, but they pretty much stop at a certain yeah. level just because yeah. of that competition thing. These trees on their own will oftentimes outcompete and, and many times like to the detriment of the trees around them. Yeah. I have a sycamore in my backyard that um, has been here. My house was built in 1966 and that tree was there when the house was built because my next door neighbors bought in 1966 when the house was new and they bought the house just because of the shade of the sycamore. Mm. So it was fully grown in 1966 and this sucker is enormous and I love it to death, but it's got a, a strain of anthrax and it, it's supposedly okay. The arborists say it's okay, but it leaves mm -hmm. out really, really late and it mm -hmm. drops its leaves really, really late. We're talking like two months 
on hmm. both sides of things. And one of these days, I know I'm going to have to take it down uh, because it's just way past its lifespan. Yeah. So you, you hear about, you know, oh, it's a shame they cut down this tree. You know, it could live for a hundred more years. That's not really the case. Unless it's like a giant sequoia, most of these trees, 40, 50 years, and then they kind of stop being protective members of society, if you will. Yes. Um, yeah. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying slash and burn. You know, I love trees. As much as I love working wood, I love the shade of a tree. But, you know, in these more groomed areas, residential areas and things like that, you actually need to think really seriously as those trees start to get larger, they can become a real danger to your property, to your house, um, you're exactly to your family, right. you know, dropping yeah, you're exactly limbs and things right. like that. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. A lot of people ask us on that tangent, but <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people ask us, you know, isn't it a shame? Um, you know, they cut down so many trees, which, uh, well, yes, it is. That's our initial thought. When we started this, we realized we did a little bit of research and, uh, we partnered with a company here in Louisville, a nonprofit, that is working to rebuild the urban canopy, uh, which is, we're grateful to them. We fanned it out, I think about 400 saplings through them and uh, they're called Trees Over Louisville. What we found out was uh, the city of Louisville within city limits cuts down about 54,000 trees per year. And they realized this in 2014 and realized we're gonna be in a lot of trouble. Now, some of that is to the ash borer beetle. They estimate about 25% of that is from the ash borer beetle, which is a large percentage, but still a lot of trees that are being cut down and uh, they realized, Louisville realized this and, and went, put forth a big initiative and planted 5,000 trees in 2015. And everyone applauded it and it was great. And an additional 55,000 trees were cut down in 2015. So we had a 100,000 tree deficit if it weren't for the squirrels and, you know, the birds hmm. planting these trees. And so we realized that and we're for saving trees, agreed. But there is a time when a tree should be harvested. Again, unless it's a sequoia tree, it shouldn't just be left to grow for a thousand years. Because it won't, it'll die, right. it'll fall over, it's dangerous. And then a lot of times it'll become diseased or things like that. And then the wood inside, you risk not being able to use it really for anything. And yeah. at that point, it, that really feels like... mulched at that point. It right, and that really feels like some of the biggest waste of these, of these trees is, you know, like these ash trees, they're standing dead for two, three years. They start to break, start to fall over. Well, they're so, you know, they're so rotted, you can't even use them for lumber now. At least they should have been harvested when we knew they were... They were at that point. So we, we would agree. Right. Yeah. It's, so it's, it's an interesting take on things that people need to be aware that, you know, although th those numbers are a little staggering, 100,000 tree deficit in, in Louisville. Do you have any understanding of why they're cutting all those trees down? I mean, what's the, what's the reason? Is it growth? Is it, is it development or are they just getting old and falling over? What's the, that seems like a lot of trees. <laughs> I know that that's what we thought. That number has stayed pretty well at, at that the last five years since then. Um, it hasn't really, hmm. then it gets dropped okay. into the 40,000s per year. But that, the other thing is Louisville's not that big of a city. I think we're yeah, right around I, a, a million people, so to speak. So I was gonna say, it's been a few years since I've been there, but I don't think of it as an urban sprawl type, you know, <laughs> I don't think of Kentucky that way at all for that matter. Right. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not like, you know, it's all this new development and everything going on. So what I guess my point is, is it sounds like that may be pretty typical, not just for Louisville, but for a lot of cities, you know, in that same similar kind of demographic, this is just part of, you know, keeping your city clean and running well, I guess, you right. know, all these trees have to cut down. Wow. Yep. That's... I think, and I think the part of it came to, you mentioned this before, a lot of urban trees, uh, that are planted, you know, they grow really quickly. Uh, they have a lot more access to nutrients in the sense that there's, there's not as much competition. 
they get a ton of sun. Uh, they even can get a little bit more heat. So here in the Midwest or maybe a little bit north, you can get some varieties that don't typically grow in the forest that can. Um, but we get two, two or three different types of magnolia that we can grow in Louisville that are native to the Appalachian area, but they don't normally grow this far north, which is kind of neat. That's just because there's a little more heat in the urban area. Uh, right. So there's some yeah. benefits there, but Louisville really had an expansion into the urban district you know, in the 60s. And everyone was planting silver maples and pin oaks. And so now we have all these pin oaks and silver maples that are four feet in diameter. And the new homeowners say, wow, this tree must be 200 years old. And they'll send me a picture of it. And I'll say, when was your house built? And I'll say, 1965. And I'll say, that's exactly how old the tree is. That's how old it is, yeah. It's grown that quickly. And at that point, you're right, these trees, they kind of become unstable. And they need to be cut down. They're diseased. They're falling down. So that definitely contributes to the amount of trees that are coming down. Is just well, and especially those very hardy maples and oaks that get replanted because they will win in the battle for competition. You know, you're that's right. You pour magnolias and sassafrases and catalpas and things like that don't stand a chance against an oak or a maple for that matter. Mm-hmm. In fact, mm-hmm. I think uh, the band Rush wrote a song about that. <laughs> play that later. So, um, that brings me to kind of my next question. Thank you for segueing that. What are some of the species that you are, um, sawing up and getting exposure to? That's a great question. We work only with local hardwoods, uh, not just things that are cut down in the city. Sometimes, uh, we have access to some forests and stuff throughout, whether someone has a property that, you know, they've got 13 acres and they've got this one tree that they've, they've wanted to make something out of for a while or something that mostly it's urban trees. So we work with a lot of walnut. We work with a lot of maple. Uh, we work with sassafras occasionally, which by far is my favorite wood. I uh, absolutely love working with sassafras. Oh, yeah. We don't get it's very much white experience. oak. Yeah, we don't get very much white oak. Um, that doesn't grow. We don't get really very much hickory. We will get black locust. The birds, the birds pollinate that. We also get a lot of mulberry, which is mm-hmm. a unique word. It, really, mulberry is more. It's a more of a tropical wood than a. It's a hardwood, but it, it functions more like a tropical. It's, it's kind of oily. It doesn't soak up a lot of right. uh, finish as, as easily as others. But we work with those. We work with a lot of eastern red cedar. That would probably be my second favorite wood to work with. And so, so those are the ones we work with. Occasionally, Osage orange, things like that. But we don't do – we don't import things. We don't work right. from, from trees, uh, as you say, outside of kind of the tri-state area of the Midwest. So, so, so no Kentucky coffee tree? We do work with some Kentucky coffee tree. Yes. Yes, we do. I was just and, wondering. I, I don't know the dis, the, uh, the range of Kentucky coffee tree. One would just assume yes. it's in Kentucky. Now, I have a question for you. You might know this. It, it looks just like red oak. It, it functions just like red oak, but the seed pods on it look like a locust tree. Do you know which one it's related to, if either? The, the coffee tree? Yes. Oh, um, I don't think it's directly related to either. It's not in the same genus. It's not a Quercus genus and the locust... I could Google it, but uh, um, I put you on the spot. The coffee there. <laughs> tree is like a gymno gymnoclatus or something, mm-hmm. uh, which is maybe in the same family as oak. Because you're right, it does have a lot of kind of similar vibe mm-hmm. to it. <laughs> if a tree has a vibe, um, <laughs> yes, yes. You, know, it, it, you could one could mistake one for the other. So, but frankly, so many you know, oak like species fall in that, uh, um, yeah. into that family. But yeah. as far as I know, no, they're not, they're not directly related, but I think what you may just be seeing is the typical temperate type tree, <laughs> yeah. you know, temperate broadleaf type tree. Um, they all kind of end up being somewhat related to one another, but no, I don't, we, I don't think anything directly. 
we did have a unique tree that we milled up for, um, for someone this past winter, and it was a cucumber magnolia, which is one of the magnolias native to the Appalachian huh. area. But it's very rare to see in an urban setting, and it was, it was closer to downtown. Uh, the home was built in, I think, 1909, and the tree was certainly planted in the front yard around that time. And wow. uh, we're, we're working with one of our arborists who's very knowledgeable about, about our urban trees and specifically Appalachian trees, which is kind of neat to learn from them. And we were talking about this, and he said the cucumber magnolia, I don't know if this is correct, so, but he said the cucumber magnolia was a really regal tree uh, in the Victorian area. Everyone wanted the cucumber magnolia because its leaves looked a little bit different, its blossoms looked different than the, the standard magnolia that we see most often today down south and along the east coast. And the inside of this, we didn't know what it was going to look like, so we started sobbing. It was, it was 35 inches in diameter, and it was a 45-foot log before it had any serious branch. And it was just wow. huge. And so, and then the customer wanted it into slabs, wanted to make a coffee table out of it and a dining table and other things. So we started getting into it and it really looked just like poplar. It was green and had a lot of mineral streaks to it, had a lot of blue, had some red hues and some purple. And we never found metal in it. We just assumed because it was in front of that house and, you know, it had basically a hundred years to kind of tap into, you know, this urban soil where there's, you know, had clay pipes and iron pipes and things like that. We just assumed it pulled up those minerals. And, uh, and it just came out of the kiln this past week, some of those um, smaller boards that we cut, some of the four-quarter and six-quarter boards, and it looks really pretty. So that was kind of a neat one, but it was cucumber magnet. It was my first time working with it. Interesting. Yeah, I just Googled it. You're right. It's very poplar looking. Um, yep. Even, I mean, from, a, from the wood perspective, certainly not, you know, from a bark and fruit perspective, but yeah, it's very magnolia-esque on the outside. I've never heard of such a thing. Yeah. And that's what I was expecting on the inside, you know, high sapwood content, uh, very right. white. And then we cut into it. It's like, this is green and it's got blue streaks all over the place. And it was kind of neat. Hmm. Largest forest tree of the Eastern United States. Good to know. So I've got a magnolia in my backyard that I actually don't know exactly what kind of magnolia is. And now it occurs to me, I need to dig into that and look a little further because um, <laughs> It's a, it, it's, um, definitely not a cucumber magnolia. I can tell you that much. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. So, um, you brought up another point and one of the other points that I wanted to bring you on the show is you are operating a solar kiln and I've certainly talked about that in the past. So let's talk a little bit about your process. First and foremost, um, good on you for just reaching out to the arborists and the tree removal companies. Also very cool just to have an arborist you know, a knowledgeable scientist, if you will, kind of in your back pocket to help you with identification and help you yes. with, you know, some of that type of stuff. Um, from a marketing perspective, what a great story to be able to tell. You know, we, mm -hmm. we handpicked this tree and the arborist told us this. I mean, they, they talk about this with reclaimed lumber. You know, you can sell a, uh, say, sell a coffee table for $100 or you can sell a reclaimed coffee table for $1,000 because you tell the story of the barn that it used to live in right. over on this prairie somewhere. And that story in and of itself is enough to, you know, raise the price by 10 times. You can do very much the same thing, but now you're adding kind of an ecological green bent to this by saying, you know, we're salvaging these trees. Um, so I guess the, as you are, you're bringing these logs in, you're, you're sawing them up, um, then they're going into the kiln or are you doing some air drying before you put them in the kiln? Great question. When we started this uh, business, we got a couple orders for some larger tables, and we didn't have the stock on hand that we had cut and milled ourselves to fulfill those orders, specifically for some larger conference tables. And so we had to outsource to um, one or two other local 
Sawyers who had some bigger slabs. I mean, they were three feet in diameter by eight feet. I think they were 12 quarter slabs. And uh, so they're three inches thick. And I asked them briefly about their drying process. I had them resaw one of them, which was, uh, was something that another another fine woodworker uh, had recommended to me. He said, if you're going to a new place, have them resaw a piece for you and bring it home and let it sit in your shop for a week and see what it does. If they're drying their wood properly, it'll stay flat. And I've heard some guys who run kilns will do this. will cut a tuning fork out of the end of the board and yeah. you know, you can see if it, if it cups or not. And yeah, this, it's this, still done um, pretty commonly when it comes to the last stage of kiln drying, when the, when mm-hmm. the steam is re-injected in order to reverse the case hardening. You yeah. put that little tuning fork and how it bends, whether it bends on itself or out from itself, mm-hmm. tells you what your your conditioning stage, your re-injection of steam is doing. Yeah. And and that tells you a lot about the wood and how it's dried and exactly what stage it's at. And so we had them resaw this piece of wood and then it was delivered the next week. And it was about, I think it was about four, a 14 inch wide board. And it was figured wood. It wasn't a straight tree. So you're going to get a little more movement there just with the natural tensions of, of, and things like that. I think it was walnut as well. Ended up cupping an inch in a, an inch in the middle, over fourteen inches wide. It cupped a full mm-hmm. inch in the middle. And the opposite piece cupped the other way. And oh, so wow. I asked them a little more. I said, "I need to know more about your drying process." I was curious. They were cutting these slabs, throwing them into a dehumidification kiln for four months, pulling them out at fifteen percent moisture. I just thought, well, "Haven't you heard of case hardening? Do you know what that is?" And, and they actually didn't. And I was I was just shocked. I was, "What do you mean you don't know the case hardening? It's drying your wood too fast." So. That's really what led us to the conclusion of we need to dry our own wood. We had difficulties fulfilling these orders that our name was going to be on. You know, if something happens to the table, I need to go back and fix it. Right. And, um, and so we, we realized we needed to have full control over our wood. So we're sourcing these trees. We mill them up. And the first step they get is they all air dry. And now we, ha- now we have to kind of specify here. There are some species that we won't cut up certain times of the year, such as white oak. White oak this time of year in Kentucky, it's 85 degrees outside, humidity drops during the day. We'll have a hard time cutting white oak here without it surface checking. And that's just air drying, just because it releases that moisture so slow. Yeah. Um, that's really kind of the only one at, at this point. Um, but, but if we cut a thicker slab, let's say a two or two and a half inch slab, we ha- I have to realize it could dry too fast just by air drying out of the sun. And that's going to give me case hardened wood, um, which means more work for me in the end. It's more risk. I risk losing, you know, the value of the wood completely if it's bad enough. So we air dry all of our own wood. We typically mill it up in the winter, which works really well because a lot of our product we make during the summer, the falls, you know, a really big buying time for, for consumers. And then the winter, we kind of take a deep breath and I get to go out to the sawmill and not talk to right. anybody and just cut. And it's just not cut so trees. hot too. I mean, let's be real. It's a lot, yes. a lot more pleasant to saw outside in the winter than it is in the middle of summer. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So that's where you do most of it. So it'll air dry from this last cycle of wood we did. It'll air dry from January again, depending on how thick it is into the summer. If it's a slab and we cut it in January, uh, we generally let it air dry at least least six months. And most guys actually would say that that's too quick. And I would agree with them if the tree was grown in a forest and those growth rings are a lot tighter. Right. Maybe if the tree was harvested when, you know, it had a high sap content, things like that. But a lot of these urban trees kind of function different. We're finding that they do function different because they grow different. And that could allow them to. It's a a key distinction because as they branch, what is a branch? It's ingrain. 
Where That's does right. moisture get lost? Through the ingrain. Any right. place you've got a crotch section, any figure that you have, it's it's like little little steam valves, if you will, mm -hmm. and moisture mm -hmm. is dumping out of those. And and this is something that in, in my world, in the commercial sector, we just don't get because right. all we want is is FAS really, you know, it's yeah. clear, it's long and it's, you know, and it's, it, that's a board and what most people think of in, in terms of board, but the stuff you're dealing with totally different species. That's exactly so, right. Yeah. yeah. We don't, totally I don't know enable. if we've, I don't know if we've got any FAS wood, at least that would qualify, you know, some walnut here or there, but most of the, most of the trees we get wouldn't really meet that standard. Right. So, so if it's a thicker, if it's a thicker slab, we let it air dry for a while. We let it air dry down until it reaches equilibrium with the uh, atmospheric humidity. So about 13% here in Louisville. If it's at 15%, mm -hmm. we'll throw it in, in our kiln at that point. And we do the same with our four quarter. Sometimes we'll cut six quarter stock, depending on uh, really the size of the tree. If it has a little bit more figure and it's um, 16 inches wide or something like that, I don't like cutting a one inch board. It's, it's just too thin. It's going to move and break. So we do, uh, we'll cut 12, six, eight, and even four quarter wood, all different sizes. And the thicker it is, the longer it will air dry. Now our four quarter material, it's one inch thick. We cut a lot of that and we end up making uh, char charcuterie boards or cutting boards out of it. And we make a lot of cutting boards, which is actually, put a little uh, pitch in here, which was what the last episode of Wood Talk was that I got to listen to. You guys were talking about making right. cutting boards. So it was great. I was, yeah, you're one, I was you're one of those that. people, those <laughs> brave right. people. But That's you know, right. if if you are if you are milling the lumber, I mean, just like Macromono was saying, you know, because you're you're milling your own lumber, you end up with so much of these weird pieces. And you mm -hmm. know, in your case with charcuterie boards, I don't know what it is about charcuterie boards. Somewhere, you know, decades ago, somebody said a charcuterie board must have a live edge because mm -hmm. uh, if it if it has like a sawn edge, it can't be a charcuterie board somewhere. Right. There's, there's a, there's a charcuterie police that are arresting people for using sawn edges on charcuterie boards. Cause they're all, yes. they're all that way. But that in and of itself is not only a great use of, you know, what would normally be waste or, or an off cut, but you're also kind of cutting into smaller pieces. So it doesn't really matter what the board does. I always say the fastest way to flatten a board is with a saw. You know, mm -hmm. you can get rid of mm -hmm. that cup in the middle just by ripping it down the middle. And now suddenly there's a lot less cup. So you can, you can, I guess, get away with a lot more because yes. you're cutting them up into smaller pieces, which is great. You know, yep. every, every part of the Buffalo is being used here. That's awesome. <laughs> That's we, we try to. Yeah. So it's so our four quarter stock. We will, we'll let air dry, uh, really unless it's white oak specific. We don't get a lot of white oak, but we'll let that air dry for about two to four months. Um, again, until it reaches about 13%, then we'll throw it in our, in our kiln as well. So. Okay. So you are operating a solar kiln at this point. Yes. Um, how'd you get started in that? I know like nothing about solar kilns other than I think they're cool. <laughs> they are, they are cool. Uh, there's a guy up in Indiana who's about an hour away from me who sells furniture grade local hardwood. And that's all he does. He, you know, he doesn't sell. Uh, he doesn't sell oak to the, you know, to the bourbon industry for, for a cooper to make a barrel out of or anything like that. He does a lot of smaller scale, specialty cuts. Um, he only does quarter sawn sycamore, for example, you know, all, all this different stuff. And he is the best guy to buy lumber from because he dries his own. He dries it in a solar kiln. He's the worst guy to sell logs to because he'll look at your perfectly straight log and tell you why it's not worth as much as you thought it was. <laughs> and I've been there uh, a time or two. And I learned how to dry wood from him. He's kind of been my mentor when it comes to uh, 
reading a log and things like that and drying. And he dries his with a solar kiln. And so three years ago when we were realizing we need to dry our own wood, I just started asking him questions about it. And, and that was kind of the only experience I had. We knew we didn't want to put the money into to add a furnace to another building to keep it hot or things like that. And I had a bad experience with just a dehumidification kiln, which I don't think those are bad. We use a dehumidifier in our kiln every now and then, but um, you really need heat. You really need they're heat finicky. to bring that water out. Yes. Yeah, yes. They're, they're particularly finicky and they can be actually quite expensive just to, mm -hmm. to maintain. That's why like that other place you were talking about said they throw it in the dehumidification kiln for four months. It's like, man, <laughs> they're either running that really, really low or their, their electric bill is ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yes, we have a, it's a 30 foot by eight foot and it's about six feet tall solar kiln, which is a pretty good okay. size. And we've modified our designs. I think a lot of different States have published some research on this. I know, um, I believe West Virginia has, Kentucky has, you know, different state universities that have, you know, the, the forestry program. And so there's a couple of different designs, but basically you collect the solar heat and um, you got to keep the sunlight off the wood. And then you just you circulate that through the wood. And the key here is when, when temperature raises, relative humidity decreases because that air can hold more water. And as humidity decreases, that will pull the moisture off of that board. But you really need another, and that's where a dehumidification kiln will work the same. But you really also need heat uh, for, for two things. As you said, it, it kind of cures those, those cells of the wood and makes it more stable and uh, more resistant to uh, accepting moisture later on. But you also need that heat that really helps pull that moisture out of, out of the board, especially if it's a 12-quarter you know, board. You can't just let that sit in a dehumidification kiln and expect to get the moisture out of the middle. So. Right. So how are you managing that? How are you regulating the temperature? How are you moving the air um, in order to, to pull the moisture? Because what, you know, ventilation, what it's doing is drawing, pushing drier air across the board, and then the, it's extracting the water because the water mm -hmm. is looking to, to the, the air is looking to, well, it's a sponge. It's soaking it up in order to come into an equilibrium. So how are you circulating the air? Just got a fan in there, moving the air around? I mean, how are you, I guess, compartmentalizing the already saturated air from the drier, warm air? Yeah. So one of the, the big things we realized early on is if you put wet wood in a kiln, well, first, you're, you're going to risk case hardening it. But second, you can get it as hot as you want. You're still going to have an 80% humidity level in there. And right. you can't dry your wood. You, you're just welcoming all the bugs and fungus and mold you know, onto your precious wood at that point. And that's really where the key is to right. air dry it well prior to that. Spalted wood. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, moldy wood, yeah. So if we air dry our wood well before this, before putting into the kiln, it's entering less than 18% moisture for sure, um, ideally down to that 13 to 15% range. Um, really, we're just trying to bring it down an additional 5 maybe 7% moisture. There's really not a whole lot of volume of, of water we're extracting, even from all the wood okay. that we'll load our entire kiln up with. Um, so, so that's really the key is the solar kiln really is not meant to be, you know, green to dry in other words. Well, now it could, it, and we've done this before. It could, if it, if it sucks in new air from outside, heats it, runs it over the boards and then spits it out of the kiln, you could do that. Right. But if you do that, you won't get your hot temperatures that you need to really effectively dry your wood. You'll maybe get about 15 right. to 20 degrees warmer than, than the ambient temperature, which is enough to dry wood. It'll 
it'll bring it down to lower than a 13% moisture content once it's dried, but it's going to be a lot slower. So ours is a closed system. And yes, if you have a closed system, you, you can't put wet wood in there because it, it won't dry it. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a key point. So, um, in, in really an open system is working very much the same as dehumidification kiln. It's just your heat source now is solar. Um, and mm -hmm. the whole mm -hmm. greenhouse idea where you set up your, however you built it, you know, a tent or plastic sheeting or whatever <clears throat> is trapping the heat in. And then you're just pushing it out through ventilation out the other side. It's the same as a dehumidification kiln. It's just a heck of a lot cheaper. Um, and that brings us my, really one of the, go ahead. You know, my concern always was, is how we actually regulate that. I mean, is it yeah. because it, in a dehumidification kiln, you've got your wet bulb and your dry bulb, um, sensors that are actually mm -hmm. shutting off heat or increasing mm -hmm. circulation with a solar kiln, you know, unless you figured out a way to turn off the sun, um, in which case you need to apply for a patent on that. Cause that's a, a <laughs> yes. or, or, or a supervillain license. One of the two, one of the, yeah, I was just thinking that. success with the latter. Um, you know, you can't really, you don't have quite the control, although I suppose venting would drop the heat, but I don't know. It all just sounds very kind of, you know, wet a finger, stick it in the air. <laughs> it sounds very yeah. imprecise. That's, I think one of the unique things about a solar kiln, and that's probably why we don't see it. There are a couple guys doing it on a, on a larger production scale, but it's not very common. And I think one of the reasons why is because it is a lot more difficult to regulate um, but the, but the regulate, well, it's difficult to regulate, let me rephrase it. If you're trying to push your production schedule at max capacity, now it's impossible. Oh, okay. And that's what a lot of people have mm -hmm. trouble with. If you just back that schedule down. So instead of trying to dry all of your four quarter walnut in three months, you just extend that to four months, which on a larger scale is a lot of time you'd waste. And I understand that, but on a smaller scale, if you're not that rushed for time, it just kind of alleviates a lot of that. Um, so a couple of the benefits of a solar kiln, which is why we did it, um, our fans operate on, uh, solar panels. So the operation of the kiln is completely free. We had the one-time cost of building it, um, which wasn't that much. I think it cost us about, I think like $1,200 to, to build it. And I didn't even cut our own lumber for it or anything. We actually bought lumber for it. So that was a 30 foot kiln. You heathen. Um, I know. I know. How dare you. Um, I didn't want to build it out of spalted maple and walnut, you know, and so I, we bought pine from Home Depot. But, um, so it was about 1200 bucks to get in. That was our one-time expense. And then it operates now completely for free. So that's definitely a benefit. The second benefit is, uh, I think you could make a case. I'm hesitant to do this cause you're certainly the expert here, but I think you could make a case for it. lumber that's been properly dried in a solar kiln is not case hardened at all. And actually it doesn't need to be reconditioned. And the reason why is because every night as the sun goes down, um, you'll get, you'll maintain the heat inside the solar kiln. So our solar kiln gets up to about 140, 150 during the summer. So it's not enough to necessarily cure, you know, the sap and softwood or things like that, but it's mm -hmm. enough to effectively dry wood. And then at night it'll cool down to 80, 90 degrees. And so what happens is as that air cools down, the relative humidity increases and all the moisture that pulled from internally on those boards, um, condenses on the very outside of the board. So every night, that wood in the solar kiln is essentially getting a very subtle reconditioned bath and it allows that wood to dry with very, very little tension. And, and I don't inject any moisture or steam into our boards. I can pull it out really at any point um, and you know, cut a tuning fork and it, it stays relatively straight. A lot of our boards we will resaw here or there and I don't have any concern about that. 
So it, it's free to run, again, of that one-time startup, um, but it takes less regulation because I, I, I'm erring on the side of drying it a little slower rather than drying it too quickly, which now I have to make sure I don't dry too quickly and I got to regulate it. So that okay. would definitely so, be one of the so benefits. Really, it's you're mimicking nature at this point. You're mimicking the air drying process, but you're just supercharging it a little bit and just speeding it up enough yeah. so that, you know, in instead of it getting to 90 degrees during the day or 95 degrees during the day, you're going up to about 140, 150, but you're still right. dropping it down and your, your overnight ambient temperatures may drop down to 90 or 80 um, <clears throat> in the, in the summer, um, depending you know on how insulated the, the kiln is. So everything right. is just kind of up about 20, 30, 40 degrees. That's interesting. So yeah, I, th I think you're right. I, I don't think you're, you're off base at all because of that very natural drying um, reconditioning that happens every single night. You are mm -hmm. not so much reconditioning the wood, but I think... Um, it's almost like you're giving really it a break. Slowing. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, you know, okay, you've stressed enough. Just, right. you know, just relax over here in your, in your, you know, isolation chamber. That's, that's very cool. It's a very gentle way to, um, to dry wood, but not quite as gentle as just stickering it and leaving it out in the, in the open air, which right. I suppose, I think you know, a lot of people will sticker and they will still tarp or cover to some extent, mm -hmm. which is really a low grade solar kiln. You know, yes. if you were yeah. to tarp, you know, even provide some ventilation and like a little bit of structure so that the tarp is just not laying over top of your wood, you're essentially creating a tent, which is going mm -hmm. to heat up. You know, and if you don't believe me, go stand under that tent in the middle of the summer and you will, yeah. you will know. So that's interesting. Very, very cool. And the other thing too about uh, that's really specifically beneficial about a solar kiln for doing work with slabs or even thicker material which we don't cut really many, much material over three inches because, as you know, it's just really difficult to dry in anything other than mm -hmm. a vacuum kiln at that point, which we don't And it's really heavy have. to move. Yes. It's really heavy to move. And how much do people really need thick lumber? I mean, come on. You want to build a Rubo workbench, I suppose. But, yeah, there's really not a lot of call, at least wide thick lumber. Yes. Four quarter by four quarter. Yes. Posts. Now we're talking, you know, and that's where your black locust you can have all day with that. But yeah, there's mm -hmm. really not a market for it. Yeah. And for these really thick slabs uh, or maybe posts, but again, we don't do much, but for these thicker slabs, it's really best if they get a break during that drying process because they're so thick. Otherwise, you're just going to have a ton of surface checking. You're going to risk case hardening. You're going to get more splits and warps. And so, you know, I would argue if you want to dry slabs, a solar kiln is probably your most effective way to go. Once it's been air dried, and that's because it does give it, it I think you're right, it just gives it a break every night, allows that tension to kind of relax a little bit and allows that wood to, to dry flat, assuming you've got it nice and sticked. So, Yeah, sure. Good point. Well, that's fascinating. And, you know, a lot less, I think I was worried about the wrong things. You know, the, the, the control freak in me wanting to have dials and gauges and thermostats. And really there's really no reason to get caught up in that because what you're doing is exactly what would happen if you stick it and air dried it just a little yep. bit, a little bit more aggressively. That's now that's there's, there's, so there's what, another what benefit. do you say is your total? Oh yeah, really? I say there's, there's one more benefit too of solar kiln. Um, and that's that, uh, apart from, I guess you'd say more of an, uh, a, a typical kiln is I can dry different thicknesses and different species at the same time. Um, hmm, and that's good. Point. And that's, and that's because I'm 
kind of backing off that max capacity drying cycle. And, um, which that being said, I just tried a whole stack of four quarter walnut from, from cut to finish. And it's at 7% moisture. It took me four months and that was cut in January and it was just finished this past week. So it wasn't even during the hottest times of the year. So it's not that much slower, uh, to dry your mm-hmm. slower, your thinner stock, but we can dry, we dried four quarter walnut. I have a piece of four inch elm in there that a customer wanted. Um, and that air dried for a while before we put it in there, put it in there 18% moisture content and it stays, it's still at 13% right now, but the relative humidity dropped so much during the day in the overall chamber, the walnut was able to dry faster than that elm did. And it's okay. So we can put eight quarter stock in there, four quarter stock. We actually even cut, um, it's, it's, it's three eighths inch stock. I don't think there's a quarter name for it. It'd be like you know, one quarter <laughs> stock basically, but we do that. We make journals with wooden covers and instead of resawing boards, we've been cutting them, uh, out of specific types of trees that are nice and straight and things like that. We'll cut these basically veneers. They're kind of a heavy cut veneer and we'll sticker and stack those and they air dry quicker and we'll put them in the kiln and we'll take them out before the other things. So that's, I guess, another benefit of a solar kiln is since you're not pushing that mass capacity of your drying cycle is you can dry different species and different sizes within reason. So. Right. I mean, I think putting it kind of another way, you're not imposing a drying schedule on the wood. You're letting the wood dry to its own schedule, but again, yep. just turning up the heat just a little bit more. So, yep. and, and for anybody who's wondering, what are they even talking about? That you really, if you're using a steam kiln or a dehumidification kiln, if you're trying to get this done in a week, two weeks, um, which can be done, you have a very aggressive, very stringent, you must adhere to stringently a schedule. You know, a certain temperature comes up to a certain temperature uh, at this time and a certain amount of uh, moisture is injected, a certain amount of steam is injected at this time. Then you raise it another five degrees and more steam mm-hmm. is injected at this point. Mm-hmm. And it is a, a recipe for drying the lumber over a set period of time, usually a very short period of time. And if you don't adhere to that schedule, you will destroy what's in there. Mm-hmm. So throw in the added variable of, you know, walnut and white oak or some other species. And that just, it just doesn't work because right. now you're, you're following the schedule for walnut and you're screwing up your white oak. Certainly you can do right. some cross species if you have similar species, but you know, even then you got to be careful. You try to dry mm-hmm. similar species. Okay. Well, walnut and butternut, they're cousins, right? No, bad idea because the density <laughs> is so different on them. You dry both in the same kiln, you will absolutely torch the butternut. Mm. So the, the, the point that, that Josh is making here is he doesn't have to worry about that. And from your kind of um, schedule, your, your perspective, your, your, your laid back approach to drying, um, <laughs> the mellow approach of drying, it works really well because you're not, yeah. you're not trying to maximize things. You're just trying, here's what I have, here's what we may need. And if you had to stick to a single species, I don't think that would work real well um, mm-hmm. because then suddenly you know, okay, well, this is going to take a little bit longer. Meanwhile, this stuff over here has to sit until the walnut's done. That right. actually works pretty well. That's, yeah. that's and, very cool. And again, you know, if, if we were doing this on a larger site, if we we're doing thousands and thousands or millions of board feet, like, like the, the company you work for, this would be difficult. You know, you would need a lot of space, a lot of different solar kilns, um, and you'd really need a dry, sunny spring instead of, you know, here in Kentucky, we've had a wet spring, and our drying schedule actually was delayed by about three weeks. Um, just because we got more more clouds, and it, so it works on a smaller scale, 
I don't think it would work as effectively on a larger scale. Right. Well, and I mean, ultimately, there's a lot of other things that that have to give once you start upping the um, the quantity that you're going for. Mm-hmm. I don't think I just don't think it would work. I think a lot of other things would would fall apart before you started to worry about the kilns. I mean, yeah. just the fact that <clears throat> what you produce is unique. And granted, you know, one FAS board to another FAS board is technically unique, but not really. You know, I mean, when, when you look at like one board of yours to one board of another board of yours, they are truly unique because they are, whether it's, it's a, you know, a, a slab from a tree or a small off cut from a branch or something like that, the quote imperfections that don't make it FAS make it a truly unique board. Well, with a unique product like that also comes a more of a niched market. So you could get suddenly, you know, add seven more solar kilns and you've got this capacity. I think you'd have trouble moving it because they're just (laughs) the market is just not there to support that. You know, I've been talking about this for a while about the dying off of the slab market. Mm -hmm. It's not so much the dying off. It's just become oversaturated. I think the market demand is the same. It's just too many people tried to jump in on it and too many people who have these high production operations who can say, you know, we're going to slap the crap out of that. You know, let's get into this market. And suddenly there's an injection of, you know, a hundred thousand board feet of slabs from one entity and the market's like, yeah, that's cool, but Mm -hmm. I just need one, you know? Yes, (laughs) that's exactly right. And has it changed too much? Um, Plus I think the fact that you are your biggest customer, you know, if in some points, maybe your only customer. um, And I think the responsible thing to do is to dry what you need rather than, you know, have all this stuff just lying around and stickered. So I guess that brings me to kind of my next point. What is the future of timber woodcraft? Do you see yourself selling lumber on a more regular basis? Like, or are you, I mean, certainly one day at a time, right? But what (laughs) what are your grand visions for the business? Yes. We've started to break into the lumber uh, side more, which I guess for any listeners out there, we do a lot of work with live edge things. If you haven't picked that up yet from the episode. So we'll just cut a log, what some guys say, just through and through. We'll just move the, the, the sawmill down the log. We won't turn it. We won't square up any sides. Um, and, and then we'll make different things out of it from tables down to charcuterie boards and cutting boards, things like that. But we do work with dimensional lumber, and I occasionally cut dimensional lumber. I, we happen to have a lot. Um, it kind of depends what the log yields and what we think, what we anticipate we might have a demand for in the coming year because it takes this wood, you know, five months to air dry, then another three months or four months in the kiln. I've got to be thinking a year in advance from when I pick up a log to what I might sell that log as. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and we do every step of that process. We finish it as well, and we, and we enjoy it. But we are moving more into the dimensional lumber. And I think because you're right, the, the live edge trend, it, it might hang around a little bit longer than people anticipate. I think it already has you know, hung around longer than people thought um, right. in, in some regard. But it won't be here forever. But dimensional lumber, that's a pretty safe thing to invest in. That will be here forever, even with a lot of yeah. well-managed forests. I think you're okay. I think it's got staying power. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, you're, the company you work for is a point in case, you know. You know so. Yeah, a couple, a couple of millennia of history and sawn lumber. I think you're all right. You're right. Gonna, so we're definitely ask, moving ask more into Egyptian there. what they think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. So we are moving well, more in that direction. Even, even a compromise in, you know, one live edge, you know, a slab with two live edges is one thing. But, you know, even kind of taking 
the customer, if you will, one step closer to the finished product and even selling uh, a single live edge board that has a straight edge on the back um, yes. could have a whole market in of itself. I mean, suddenly you have a DIY shelf mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. and all that person's got to do is put shelf brackets on it and they've got that cool live edge look to it or whatever. Or countertops oftentimes are book matched. I see a lot of kitchen countertops mm-hmm. that <clears throat> they want you know, they've got to have a, a, um, a saw on edge to go up against the backsplash or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. There, there could be a whole other, whole other market of, of products there. Interesting yeah. stuff. And I think that actually is more our style. You hit it on the head. We're trying to blend uh, this rustic with also modern. Um, and that's kind of more of our style. We lean more towards the modern. And what I mean is uh, you see pictures of a lot of people doing live edge stuff. And I think the ones that are doing it better are on that side too. They kind of lean towards uh, more petite legs, thinner tops, uh, sleek designs. Uh, whereas for a while there, the live edge thing got into like, you throw a few six by sixes under it, you put epoxy over all of it and you can't even see the wood anymore and you carve a bear in it. Right. <laughs> you know, and it's just yeah. at that point, in my opinion, hideous. And so we, we lean more towards, we think there's a little bit more of a lasting future in, okay, let's blend this raw natural material it has a lot of character, maybe a live edge or not. Like you said, let's blend this with the, you know, Chip and Joanna Gaines white kitchen, so to speak. And, uh, so you're right. That's, that's kind of the direction we lean towards from a style standpoint. Wow. Well, this is, um, this is really exciting. I think, um, I, I'm kind of, you're kind of exactly the type of person I wanted to talk to rather than somebody who's running this huge facility and cranking out a bunch of lumber or somebody that's actually creating the lumber that they need to build things. Um, as I said at the outset, what a cool advantage, that you actually get to saw your logs for something you want to build or be inspired by the logs and then take it that next step. Um, mm-hmm. I know just day in and day out, I'll oftentimes run across a board of the lumber yard and it's like, man, I would love to build something out of that, you know, and you yeah. don't really get that opportunity because that board is destined to go to somebody else somewhere else. So it's yep. pretty cool. And I like to think that really, one of the futures of the lumber industry is going to trend back towards your style of business. There's always going to be the big guys. There's always going to be a huge demand. Let's not even talk about softwoods. There will always be a huge demand for, you know, lumber yards that can be seen from space producing studs and two by, you know, construction lumber that will mm-hmm. always be there, but really starting to see the local lumber yard, lumber mill, um, gain some prominence again because of this idea of using locally sourced. Um, the idea of of salvaging lumber has real legs to it. And the more and more we look at, I mean, even in this conversation, we talked about 50,000 trees a year being cut down by a city. And I don't think people realize what those trees are getting mulched or mm-hmm. burned. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not being turned into boards because as you know, it's not easy to do, you know, it's labor intense, it's expensive. There's a lot of other steps required and those that have gotten the efficiency part down, it took them a while to get there. So I think that we're going to see just a general trend back towards the boutique, if you will, Mm -hmm. when it comes to lumber production. And we may see more and more, uh, little guys like yourself that maybe are producing, you know, a thousand board feet here or there, and that may be enough. That may be just fine. And maybe what yeah. we'll see is if we can get back to a more, uh, for lack of a better term, natural product, you know, mm-hmm. a live edge through sawn rather than ripped into a bunch of square boards, 
people may start to use more of the board. Um, I know personally, one of the things that appalls me the most about the commercial construction sector is just the sheer volume of waste. Yeah. You know, as, as a, as a woodworker, we often talk about, you know, add 20% to your order in order to cover your, your, you know, oops factor in that project. Mm -hmm. Most of my customers automatically add 50 to 80% wow. because that's what the, the waste volume is because it's, it's not a matter of, you know, oh, there's a knot on that board cut around it. No, ditch the whole board and find one that doesn't have a knot in it. Mm -hmm. yep. um, you know, and, and some of that is, um, demands placed upon the, the builder by maybe an unrealistic architect or designer, mm -hmm. um, uh, engineered products, making people think that stuff just grows 25 feet long and has no mm -hmm. knots in it because yeah. they saw this over here in some laminate plank flooring that was actually printed and not grown. You know, yeah. that, that has helped plastic has helped to alter the perception that this is an organic product and people are shocked that you can't get it perfectly clear 30 feet mm -hmm. long. Mm -hmm. Um, but then you've also got this idea that there is a drop in the skill level and the craftsmen out there who know that if I cut this board here, I can then splice it to the one over here using a scarf joint, or I yeah. can hide that junction using some woodworking technique. A lot of that is gone um, from the job site because, you know, faster, 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 throw yeah. up that crown, put together that floor, and there's really no time for coping of a joint, you mm -hmm. know, for good or for worse. You know, certainly there's time is money, right? We've got to do that. But I, I do think that we may see the pendulum swing the other direction. And the good yeah. news is, is I, it looks like you're well positioned to already be <laughs> where the pendulum is swinging towards. So I hope so. Really it's, it's, it's hard to predict though, you know, where, where things oh, will, yeah. will trend to or things like that. But you're right. I mean, 50 years ago, you knew a guy who had a sawmill and right. um, if you need a fence post or things for your barn, you went to him or he came out to you. There were these bigger guys. And you're right, I think there's, there's always going to be you know, these bigger guys and smaller guys, but the smaller guys had a strong foothold and they had a um, they had a really important part of this of this sector of our economy, and right. and it was a needed part. And I think we've lost a lot of that. And so well, I, I hope a, we do see a There's a symbiosis there as well. Um, you know, the tree removal guys love you because right. <laughs> you've made their life so much easier. So there's this partnership that's happening there, and we still see this today. Um, I went to Austria a few years ago, and I remember being on a train from Vienna to Salzburg. They're pretty much opposite ends of the country. And we're driving through this, driving, riding on a train through this gorgeous countryside, and every little village you go through had a sawmill. I mean, granted, yeah. this is me. We're talking about, I noticed the sawmills. My wife's looking yeah. at, oh, look at that lovely chapel. I'm like, check out that sawmill over there. <laughs> yep. You know, but every little village had a Sawyer. His last name might've been Sawyer for God's sake, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. whatever Sawyer is in German, I should know that. But, you know, this village economy existed where if you needed wood, you went to the guy down the street, you know, who ran the local sawmill. And yeah. certainly today you can go further afield and find other products. But for the most part, if you had, if we all had a local Sawyer, we probably would go to that guy first. You know, right. you give them first dibs and, and you can turn around and say, you know, I just, I don't have that or it's not a product that I make. And then you go to Home Depot or whatever. But every woodworker I know, if they had the option of, of turning to Josh, you know, they would do that first because of that, you know, connection um, to be able to see the log being sawn, to have that unique factor of being able to use 
magnolia, cucumber magnolia, especially, mm -hmm. um, that I think that coolness factor would translate all the way back to the average homeowner and the average consumer to be able to have that unique factor. The problem is we don't have that option. Right. Um, I don't really have a, I do have a local sawmill, but it's a big sawmill. Um, and it's been around for several, several, wow, almost a hundred years now. And it's a great sawmill to go to. And I will usually try to give him first dibs. But if I want to go to an operation like yourself, you know, a, a mobile band mill or Alaskan mill unit, I've got to go up into Pennsylvania a little bit further afield. And sometimes I don't always do that. So I think the more people like you out there running your business, I think the, you know, the better off we'll be. Mm. Um, it's not a competition game because it sounds like you got plenty of logs. <laughs> yeah, it actually reminds me. It reminds me of a really funny story. And again, one of the previous episodes of the Lumber Update, you talked about the journey a board takes from being cut down as a tree to getting in the hands of the consumer. And again, fascinating. So if you're listening to this, go back, check out that episode. But uh, it made me pause and think. Um, so I, I think I've cut around. So when you, when you cut a board to the listeners, you need to put sticks in between it to allow airflow. If you don't, you can just do what's called dead stacking it. You can do it for a little bit, but you're going to get mold and that those boards won't ever dry out, they'll end up rotting that way. Right. So you have to sticker them, I think is the official mm -hmm. Sawyer term. And yeah. um, I've got a bunch of figured wood and I have a, a bunch of walnut and figured maple and I don't want to cut sticks out of walnut, although I have, I have before, I have to confess. And so we get an order of logs come in, we're already full at max capacity, but I don't want to turn it down. So we'll go back, we'll cut it up and I run out of sticks or I don't have sticks at the right size or something like that. And so what's funny is after listening to the episode, I ran to Home Depot and I look in their scrap bin and I found, you know, a good one by six and it had whatever, some defect in the end. And so it was 70% markdown. So I go and I check out those like a dollar fifty board and I'll end up getting however many 30 sticks out of it, whatever. And I come home and I see on the back of it, it says product of Sweden. And I just thought, how, how wild is this? This was grown probably in a well-managed force. It was cut down. It could have been milled and dried in place before it was shipped over. It was then shipped over in a Home Depot warehouse, you know, stored there. It was then distributed to Home Depot. Then someone wasn't careful of the forklift, damaged it. But they didn't realize how much work went into this board. And now they're just trying to offload it. And so now I buy it. I cut it into inch sticks. And now I'm drying urban wood. It just The process was just crazy. And yeah. we can do it efficiently with so many, uh, so many benefits of, of the age we live in. But it also makes me step back and think I should be able to sell trees that I got here cheaper than trees that were harvested over there. Um, so it, it kind of brings Maybe. back to that idea. <laughs> Maybe it's still shocking to me how, um, you know, you can still buy like radiata pine sometimes cheaper. You mm -hmm. know, the stuff was grown in New Zealand and it's now, here, you know, and, and, and for me on the East coast of the U S it's like, this is ridiculous, but yep. you know, it's all yep. about, it's all about volume and cutting those costs, I suppose. Mm -hmm. but yeah. Interesting. It came from Sweden too. Cause I thought I didn't think Sweden exported lumber. I thought it all just went to Ikea. That's at least all what the sticker said. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. It was an Ikea. Uh, it was b bound to be a Billy bookcase and it didn't match some yep. spec somewhere. And now it's a sticker in, in Louisville, Kentucky. That's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Yeah, it was just a wild, wild story from, from board well, and then being used again. But it's something very worthwhile to see. And I, I think I made, might have made that point in that episode is, you know, before you start complaining about the cost of your lumber, and don't get me wrong, I've done it. 
Um, you know, you, you go to check out, you're like, holy crap, that's expensive. But mm -hmm. you got to think about everything that's happened to that board. Um, and there's a lot, a lot of labor involved. And most of it is labor. Most yep. of the cost is in that kind of difficult to capture intangible labor pool because there's there's nothing easy about processing lumber and you can automate it like crazy um, but then you have to manage all that machinery and mm -hmm. one thing that log milling machinery does is go through a hell of a lot of wear and tear yep. you know these logs rip up blades and rust blades and make blades sticky and resins will eat through blades and so there's you know you automate it but then you throw your labor into maintaining that machinery and replacing that machinery yeah. and capital expenses on there, or you go of a less automated route and it's sweat equity at that point. And there's mm -hmm. just really no way to go from tree to a board, um, in an inexpensive way. Right. So yeah. Right. Think about that. You know, it, you, you could still complain and grumble on your breath about the cost of 12 quarter cherry. That's fine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, uh, you know, try not to do it begrudgingly. <laughs> the guy's just right. trying to make a living on his side of things too. So yeah. Well, this is great, Josh. Any last parting words, anything? Um, where do people find you and, and how, do, how do they get in touch with you if they want to buy your stuff? Yeah, so our website is timberwoodcraft.com. Uh, we're on Instagram as well. And that's probably the best place. Reach out to us there. And if you're local, uh, we work from home, but we have people swinging by our shop all the time. Shoot me a text. And uh, we love connecting with the customer. And that's, I guess we kind of said it earlier, but one of the, the neat things about this business is we really get to come into contact with these trees and the trees do kind of have a story that they get to tell. And that's, and naturally we also get to connect that with our customers. We get to know them. Uh, we'll have reoccurring customers, you know, for the past couple of years, they'll text and I need this gift again for, you know, whatever. And I say, yeah, I remember the walnut one I made for you last year. And we really enjoy that. And I think we value, uh, knowing people, knowing where things come from, knowing how they were made, instead of just that end bottom dollar, although that's important for us too. But, um, and I think that's one thing that we're trying to, we're trying to kind of uh, fill that market and fill that, that niche. So timberwoodcraft.com, that's where you can find us and see a little bit more about what we do. But also would, would say to the listeners, hope this is okay. Subscribe to this podcast, support Shannon on Patreon, check him out at the Renaissance Woodworker. I cannot, cannot promote him enough. I've learned a ton from him. I've enjoyed every bit of this show. Um, I also listened to him on another one called Wood Talk. I recommend that one. Matt Cremona cannot pronounce anyone's last name, and it's my favorite part of the show <laughs> every week. Uh, so check Shannon out too, and I, I just appreciate you taking the time to let me be here. Oh, no, it's been a pleasure, Josh. It's been really a fun conversation. We talked about a lot of different things. Um, all I can say is um, I, I might make a road trip just just for cucumber magnolia, just, you know. <laughs> that's tough I would love that. kiln. I've got a lot of, and you know, and you know, another funny thing, um, everyone always tells me, you know, at these art shows and stuff, they always say, isn't walnut beautiful? Don't you love this walnut? Don't you love walnut? I think, well, yeah, but you know, standard walnut boards that are cut or quarter sawn, you know, they don't have any knots or anything like that. I kind of think they're really boring. I, that's probably a, <laughs> a heresy to say that, but you know, compared to a lot of the, you know, the figure and the, and that we cut up this walnut tree, um, last year. And I couldn't figure out why it, it was a pretty straight tree, but it just looked like it had, if you've ever seen in white Oak Ray Fleck, it, it literally looked like that throughout the walnut tree from the heart all the way to the sapwood. And you didn't notice it until it was sanded at 220 and finished. And then it just, 
man, it just jumped out. Hmm. And I've never seen a walnut tree like that. And now I look at plain walnut and I think that's kind of boring. You should get it. <laughs> so if you want to come by, Shannon, like we'll give you some. Wing figure. Well, and, and you know, that's, that's a key point because walnut really wants to be that way. Walnut mm. is a gnarly tree that branches and grows and goes all kinds of stuff. It's not really meant to be a straight grain wood, which by the mm. way is why walnut is quite expensive because in order to get it that way, the trees have to be specifically grown and they have to be specifically sawn and the waste factors through the roof to get mm -hmm. to them. And then there's that whole steaming thing, which I know most of us cringe when we think of steam walnut, but the general populace wants a wider board. So they're trying to blur that line between the sapwood and the heartwood. And that's what the steaming does. So there's so much that's done to walnut to make it boring. And you're right. It's kind of yeah. sad because walnut in its natural state is not at all boring. And there's some crazy stuff that goes on with it. So mm -hmm. here again, another reason to, to patronize your, your local Sawyer and, you know, Josh, you know, you're, you're, you're making stuff, you're making your wood primarily for the projects you need at this point, but I guarantee you after this episode, maybe some people come knock on your door wanting to buy lumber. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> we, would, so. we would love that. <laughs> That'd be great. That'd be great. Well, thank you so much for your time, sir. And um, I appreciate the, the kind words. I, I do enjoy this podcast and the wood talk thing and Renaissance Woodworker. So I, I appreciate that uh, unsolicited, I may add, um, <laughs> plugging of my own shows. So <laughs> yes, correct, that's awesome. Correct. And uh, continued success and, and good luck with Timber Woodcraft. Thank you. It was great being here.